3: to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a look at the National Museum of African American Music. I recently visited the museum located in Nashville, Tennessee. The building opened this year and is a showcase for the music and musicians who shape the sounds that move, inspire, groove, and entertain the nation and the world. A walk through the halls and galleries is a chronological journey that brings to life the stories and masters of music. From the sounds that slaves brought from the motherland, to the beats being mastered in studios today, from the prolific Thomas Dorsey, whose music helped shape the start of the 20th century, to the contemporary artists topping the charts today, they all have a place in this interactive museum. I sat down with the museum's CEO and president, Henry Beecher Hicks III. Great to see you. Great to see you, man. Thank you yeah.
4: for uh for having me. I'm a pleasure to be with you.
3: Yeah, I was just telling you, congratulations uh on everything. It is more than a notion to uh to get a museum up. I don't think that most people understand uh the daunting undertaking, the politics that goes along with it, you know, the money raising, trying to curate everything. Uh this took over two decades from start did, to finish. It, it
4: did, it did. 23 years, man. And and uh there were a couple of guys, uh, political and business leaders in town, Francis Guest and Dr. T. B. Boyd, who got together and thought it would be a good idea to have a, a originally a Black History Museum, a Black Cultural Museum in Nashville that really dealt with the sports, uh, the civil rights, the 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 political legacy that is uh, Nashville. William Edmondson, the fine art sculpture from here, the John Lewis and Marion Barry and others who were civil rights activists here. The Tiger Bells and and uh, folks like that who really were icons in sports, and that was really the idea of a museum, and then the Jefferson Street corridor that was so important to the evolution and the development of black music was central to the idea. And after you know ten or so years of of, of kicking that around and trying to advance the ball on it. Nashville really began to evolve as a brand and Music City, USA, mm-hmm. with heavy uh, country connotations really became Music City, uh, which began to embrace many more forms of music. And at that point, we made the decision to switch the focus of the museum and have it be focused on music. Uh, so it matched the city's brand much easier for the political and philanthropic community to understand why this would be such a good fit in the city. Um, And as it happened, there was no National Museum of African-American Music. And we looked around the country, and and so we were able to to, to capture that branding or that idea. And then we put the museum together in a way that's really very unique. Uh, It's not about a label. It's not about an artist. It's not about a genre. It really is about American history and the music that came out of those periods of time and the significant role that Africans, African-Americans made, initially Africans, uh, but then African-Americans made in creating those forms of music. And so we really, in a way that most other museums don't, we center the African-American creator, we center the African-American experience, but we also try to welcome everyone uh, into the museum and make it everybody's story so they can see themselves, they can see their mama, they can see their granddaddy, uh, they can see their kids in the museum and kind of say, this is why this is mm-hmm. happening when it's set in cultural and historical context.
3: Yeah, you know, what's great is you really do start from, you know, the music that comes from the motherland and talk about how when slaves were brought here, the evolution of music from that point on in the Amer- in the Americas. That's, uh, you know, one of those things that often we forget. We we either think blues You know, was the start of music for Black folk here in this country,
4: but really that was not the
3: case. So it's a it's a great march through.
4: Absolutely, and that 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 really resonated with me. I tell the story all the time. In addition to making a promise to the community that we wouldn't lose the history and the and the sports and the culture that was a part of the original idea, uh, I also read uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns, that deals with the Great Migration and really kind of helps you walk through. Uh, American or Black American history in that way. And we really wanted to put a museum together that mimicked that way of delivering history in a very contemporary way. Uh, and that's what what I think we've been able to do.
3: I don't know of any museum, again, you and I were talking about this before uh, I hit record, that opens without a controversy. And that was the case with you guys in the sense of initially there was a thought of it being located in, and for people that don't, No nashville we'll just talk about a historic black neighborhood jefferson street right um eventually it found its home in the downtown music district obviously um for tourism that's going to be better but talk to me about how you guys had to to deal with that and 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 why those decisions were made and and how it has been embraced because i'll say that everybody that uh, i went down this past weekend you know everybody that i knew either had gone uh, or in talking to people as I was in town, were very ultimately pleased with the museum in and of itself.
4: Yeah, I mean, and so that is, that is super gratifying. People come to the museum, and they say, man, it had a, had a great time, really makes the Black community, folks who, who I think in this town, uh, too many in the African-American community really felt marginalized uh, against the rapid growth that the city is experiencing And so having the museum in this very central location, I think, makes those African-Americans, the the black folks in town, really feel a part of it and feel welcome. But you're right. It wasn't easy. And that's where the the politics really comes in. I really needed to have a series of one on one conversations with uh, city council people and uh, thought leaders, political leaders, community activists to help them understand what we were doing. And as I alluded to, had to make some promises and say, listen, you know, the Jefferson Street story will not be forgotten. The Nashville story will not be forgotten. We will bring in the history and the sports into the story. So we make sure that all of that is there. And I think we what resulted was a, a much better product. Um, you know, we also make it a, a real point to send people from Fifth and Broadway in downtown Nashville out to Jefferson Street to remind them of the significance of that culture and the significance of that of that corridor and so it really has been an on-the-ground community engagement strategy uh, that has has made it become so acceptable and hopefully those folks who were resistant are now and remain our friends you know because we have to be here we have to be a part of this yeah, community yeah. And, and we want to represent all of that community really well
3: what do you say to those who will say telling the story of jefferson street is fine but the economics would have been better had you landed here. Um, I know that you do have educational components to the museum, scholarships and the like. But how do you how do you assuage them and make them feel a little better?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, the the one of the things that I n- now know is that <laughs> the only thing that's harder than opening a museum is keeping it open. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, uh, economics is what really has to drive our decisions about these kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, we have to make sure that we give ourselves the best opportunity to be financially sustainable for the long term so that we can be a part of the economic redevelopment of Jefferson Street. And so, you know, I, I personally hope that we will invest dollars in that community over a period of time once we get up on our own feet. Uh, you know, believe we just had a strategic planning session with our board of directors just yesterday, and we really are beginning to think already about what the horizon looks like. How do we, uh, how do we make sure that we are in some ways physically connected uh, to communities and to people who most need us to be?
3: Yeah, uh, you guys are in a prime spot, though. I mean, the Ryman Auditorium is right across the way. For those that don't know, that's really the the kind of diamond of the country music world and where the Grand Ole Opry was and all of the greats there. So you you hold some prime real estate. I'm going to ask you a question I know has been asked of you a million times as you first started this and that is, um, you know, beyond the obvious, why not? But why Nashville? There are people who would say, well, it should have been Detroit. It should have been Philly. It should have been, you know, any number, Memphis, if you were going to go to Tennessee. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, was it just simply the connection that if you're going to call us Music City, we want to be placed front and center in this?
4: Well, that that, that was certainly part of it. Uh, that was That was part of it. But in addition to that, uh, you know, the city invested in the project. So there, there was a, a fiscal piece of it. But I think also, I mean, as I, I, I alluded to the Great Migration earlier, and I think if you, if you do go back 75 years or so, I mean, you certainly see other centers of music around the country, Atlanta, Detroit, mm-hmm. uh, LA, New York. But if you go back 150 years, uh, and you look at where music was, it was actually even further south. Than Nashville's further south in Tennessee, and so that great migration brought uh, that American music up through Memphis, uh, up through uh, the Appalachian area, the eastern parts of Tennessee, Knoxville, and Johnson City, uh, and also up through uh, Nashville. And so uh, gospel music is is big here. Uh, R and B has been big here. Most of the artists in the industry get paid out of Nashville. Uh, the uh, the the big uh, 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 artist rights agencies have their, their disbursement offices here in Nashville. So, really, music is a part of of the the fabric of this city. I think, in a way that is unlike any other place in the country. Uh, and we just need to make sure that the Black culture really is is represented, and that even as we look out around the country, uh, it it the all roads really do come through Tennessee at some point if you go back far enough in history.
3: When we return, what the museum has to offer, from Duke Ellington's coat, to BB King's guitar, to George Clinton's cape, to Lisa Left Eye Lopez's boots, all just a part of the 1,500 artifacts you can see.
1: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
0: Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty.
3: The museum tells a bigger story than just music. It shows the connective nature of the times and song. It illustrates how music often shapes the zeitgeist. From spiritual hymns during slavery to rebellious rap announcing the reality of police brutality, music is often a savior and truth-teller. Historic narratives, including how the Fisk Jubilee Singers were organized to help the university survive economically in its early days, and how the music industry made it difficult for Black artists and executives to share in the economic spoils, it's all here. But more than anything, the museum honors those who have made the sweet sounds that play a large role in the history of American music. What do you want the the museum ultimately to morph into? I mean, museums, people think history and they think, okay, that's it. But really, a good museum is a living, breathing entity that changes with time?
4: Sure, absolutely. Changes, grows, develops, continues to think not only about the past, but also the present and the future. Uh, You know, one of the things that we say here is that Black music finally has a home, or Black music has a home. Uh, That's important to us. Uh, One of the things that, you know, as you look at the disparate forms of, of Black music, and you look at the the artists that you and I may love and our, our family members love, who never won a Grammy, who, who never will be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame. Uh, but now Black music has a home where they're celebrated and, and uh and, and appreciated for the culture that they've created and being the soundtrack of our lives, yeah. looking backwards as well as looking forward. But at a, and I think there's a place in the music industry as well. So One of the things that we did on around Juneteenth was we had our first State of Black Music Summit uh, that we held at the museum where we brought together hundreds of music industry executives to talk about where black music is and where it's going. Uh, But in addition to that, I mean, I think, you know, we also, our our principal tagline for the museum is one nation under a groove. And so right as you walk through the front door of the museum, you see right above your head a replica of that, that impressive flag that was created in the mantra, one nation under a groove, and that is not by accident. Uh, we uh, want to embrace things that are unapologetically black and most definitely funky, uh, but we want to also welcome everybody into the conversation. And, and so that is really what we're trying to do. The galleries in the
3: museum carry names that speak to the culture of Black America. Crossroads takes you from the slave ships and sounds of Africa to the blues that were created out of the hardships those subsequent years brought. Wade in the Water, that gallery highlights the importance of gospel music and what it brought to Black people. Love Supreme highlights the innovative nature of jazz. One Nation Under a Groove Brought Soul and R&B Front and Center. And the message spotlights the importance of rap and hip hop. So the idea of being what is now cliche, but this sense of authentically black, knowing what our culture is, appreciating it and not having to kind of marginalize and figure out how to make it acceptable. Um, I didn't get that sense. I got a sense of it's open to everyone, but it's, it's ours in a real way.
4: That's right, and that—that's what we set out to do. I mean, it's very important to us, you know. Again, you know, very important to us that that uh, folks who are not African Americans feel welcome, uh, because we are, we need to be, you know, today maybe more than ever one nation under a groove, uh, you know. But also, you know, we need people to be open minded to the learning to the to the things that they can learn in a place like this, and to get them to come, they have to feel welcome. And so, while we're telling this unapologetically black story, again, I think you know, white folks and folks from all walks of life and even all international uh, nationalities can see some of themselves here. uh, But by the same token, we really wanted to be uh, really authentically and unapologetically Black.
3: Money is the only way museums survive and thrive. In almost two decades, the museum has raised over $60 million and gathered 1,500 items of memorabilia. I think about what you guys have in there. Curators and what you can bring into the museum at the end of the day are the important things because that's what people are searching for. I mean, I think of the Grammys that you have from a couple of people. You got outfits. You've got a Teddy Pendergrass outfit, George Clinton's cape. I yeah. mean, just a lot of stuff in there for people to kind of go and and check out. Give me a sense of wanting um, the community to be involved in either making sure that you guys can stay in the fight of obtaining these kinds of things, because not only do you have competition, obviously, from museums that may have a crosshatch with you. And that's obviously the Smithsonian in Washington being number one. Motown is opening a museum and attempting to do that in the next few years. But um, museums really need community
4: support at the end of the day. We do. I mean, and that that comes in a number of ways. I mean, it, it certainly is fiscal. I mean, we've got to you know we need to encourage people to come and buy a ticket and have have a good time. We need them to uh, support us by buying memberships and and giving uh, generously to the to the work. But we also do need help and assistance from the artists and the folks who have collected memorabilia from the artists to to keep us current in that regard as well as well as to help us find things that are unique and. And that uh, that are or maybe have, have been forgotten, but people are looking for. So it really is a community process. And so uh, that has been really a, a learning experience for me. I mean, I, you know, I I really kind of stumbled into this uh, in some ways accidentally, but I, I guess I don't believe there are many accidents. And, mm. um, you know, and so I, I didn't expect to do this, but really has been a phenomenal growth experience for me personally. To learn how how community driven this place is, and how uh, they they become community centers in the best sense of the of the word, uh, and so we need that to continue. We we work hard every day to make sure that continues.
3: How difficult is it? Um, and I know you're not necessarily on the day to day of this, but you know I think about when you talk about people who haven't necessarily gotten their just desserts from the industry itself. Yeah, you know, I was shocked. I had m- probably my first celebrity. Crush was the singer Nancy Wilson. My parents had her albums, and I used to to look at those album covers and say, "My mama's friends don't look like this lady right here." I tell you, she's right. something else. <laughs> but I was shocked, and I became—I uh, don't want to say friends, but acquaintances—with Nancy Wilson over the years, as as really? I you know got into the business. But I was shocked to find out that she never had a gold album. Yeah, uh, yeah. but you know, you wouldn't have gotten any bigger uh, than Nancy Wilson. She certainly was a groundbreaker for us and television and the like. Um, how do you decide who gets placement and you know um, who who gets saluted, so to speak? Because certain people, uh, by not no means of talent, but just sheer space, are going to get you know left out, unfortunately. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, so there are a couple of ways that we do it. I mean, one of the ways is uh, on the on the curatorial side is that we have a battery of scholars that we rely on. We've got a curatorial team in house that we are very proud of. I mean, these are, these are uh, African-American uh, PhDs uh, in ethnomusicology who have studied this. And then we worked in terms of the formation of the museum and the, the story in the museum. We went out to music scholars around the country to get them to write essays for us on genres and subgenres of music, talked about the movements within those genres and the artists that really typified those movements mm-hmm. Uh, And then we put it all together in a big story, uh, filled in gaps where they were necessary. And then we said, "Okay, these are the stories that we need to tell who best represents that. And then and those are the artists that will help us tell the story. Um, But we also are very fortunate. We've got a lot of technology in the museum uh, and that interactive. Yeah, I mean, so that was something that was really important to us because through the technology, we think we can minimize. Uh, the number of artists who just, who don't get their due. They can be uh, included and they can be, they can participate in the storytelling in that way. And then a final way uh, that that we've dealt with that is our awards. So we have, for the last seven years now, we've done, we've created something called the Rhapsody and Rhythm Awards. and It is a celebration of legends. Uh, We held that on the day before Juneteenth this year, maybe it was two days before. Um, And we have a committee of artists folks in the music industry, artists and artist managers and label executives who are on that committee who nominate and vote on those people who will be honored with our Rhapsody and Rhythm Award so that we really uh, can get to those artists who may not have had a gold album, may not have won a Grammy, may not be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but who artists and practitioners in Black music say, these are the ones who we need to celebrate.
3: Well, again, uh, we talk a lot about needing to own our own and creation of a salute to those who who have really been a part of making us who we are. And so this museum goes a long way in, in doing that. So I just want to say congratulations again to you and your team. I would encourage everyone as you look for things as we hopefully will come out of this pandemic eventually. Who are going to be looking for things to do for those who love music, especially. Uh, this is a great place uh, to go and visit. So we're going to do all we can to help you push continued support of, uh, of this museum.
1: Well,
4: thank you so much. I appreciate it. Tell folks, put on a mask and come see us. Indeed. <laughs>
3: Another thanks to Henry Beecher Hicks III, Make sure to support this important undertaking. If you're looking for a great family outing, if you love history, or especially if you're a music lover, make sure to put a visit to the National Museum of African American Music on your calendar. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media.
2: Off today.